Hello, everyone, again. Thank you for sitting silently and patiently and mindfully and virtually with everyone. Just in case you missed the very beginning, my name is Heather and my pronouns are she, her. And I will give a short Dharma talk and then we'll have a question and response, either about the Dharma talk or about the meditation, whatever is arising for you in the moment. And this story that I'm about to talk about, I think came up for me because of the continued division in our society. We have the Derek Chauvin trial happening now in Minneapolis, and we just had another young black man murdered by a white police officer. And, you know, the Buddha's teaching is for everyone, liberation for all of us, justice for all of us. And I just want to, um, maybe we can hold that in our hearts. Um, just for me, uh, it's very helpful for me to um, just express that here in this group. And while I am a, identify as a white bodied person, um, I have had my own experiences of feeling othered and the story that comes up for me is um, one, when I was a senior in high school, many years ago in 1984, I grew up in a um, very multicultural neighborhood in Mount Vernon, New York, which was just outside of the Bronx. And one of my good friends in high school, Rhonda, she um, was accepted early admission into Harvard University. So a few, a few of us, four of us decided to celebrate Rhonda's being accepted into Harvard she was also, I think, graduated number three or four in our class. So we drove to this, uh, in our friend Tracy's car, we drove to this neighboring community called Bronxville, New York, which is a very wealthy white enclave. It still is very wealthy and very white. And we went to this haagen and we got our ice cream and we settled into this booth in the haagen -Dazs. and there was four of us, Rhonda and Tracy, uh, Anna and myself. And we were eating our ice cream in our booth, which was really, which was open, just like our seat, our little booth with four of us abutted this booth behind us. And we were just very excited about Rhonda going to school and it was October and it was, you know, autumn and it's probably close to my birthday. So there's a lot of excitement in the air. We were pretty giddy, you know, we were 17 or so. And um, we started to overhear some of the snickering and um, denigrating commentary that the girls behind us were making about us. 
right? They were making it loud enough so that we could hear them and kind of riled us up a little bit. And um, so Rhonda, who was sitting with her back to the, to the girls behind us, uh, after a little while, we were just getting a little, a little annoyed and agitated by these women. And um, she took out her Harvard ID card, student ID card, and she turned around and she showed it to them and said, Harvard University, read it and weep, right? Because our sense from them was that we didn't belong in this haagen We weren't white enough. We weren't wealthy enough. Um, Rhonda's black. My friend Tracy is, was Spanish and also Japanese. And Anna and I were Caucasian, white-bodied. And that really shut them up. The fact that here's this black woman sitting in their white haagen They're making fun of us because we're not from their neighborhood, from the working class neighborhood um, a few miles away. And of course, they were stunned by what Rhonda did. I think she probably cursed at them. I'm trying to not curse, so I didn't say what she said. Um, but they were silenced. That was it. They, did, they didn't make fun of us anymore. But after they left, we decided to follow them. And um, I don't remember exactly all that transpired, but I do know it was October because we pulled up, we were following, I don't even know if we, if we were even following the right car, but at some point we, there was a park along our left side and there was these palatial houses to our right. And there was all these jack-o'-lanterns everywhere. And um, we hopped out of the car and we just started smashing all these pumpkins. Right? We're just taking out our anger um, on these pumpkins. So there was you know, all this orange squash flesh everywhere and um, the candles were all snuffed out. And then we hopped back in the car and we drove away. Um, so I really didn't, haven't thought about this story so much. Uh, but now that I have been a practicing Buddhist for a while and been talking more at San Francisco Zen Center, as well as taking some classes on social justice and identity. Um, I think back then I didn't even consider that maybe these, these four white-bodied girls were actually being racist toward us because of Rhonda and Tracy. I was so identified as a working class Italian American that I felt insulted by their snickering because of the wealth, because of classism, right? I would have called them back then snobs. Um, and I didn't even think that it was because Rhonda and Tracy were not white. Uh, my world was very non-white in many ways. So that didn't register for me. What registered was the, was the personal hurt I was experiencing because I wasn't wealthy. My family wasn't educated. Um, so it's interesting looking back how I didn't, didn't really register with me that way uh, about my friends. And it's not like any of us really talked about this afterward. In fact, a couple of my friends reached out to me. Uh, one of them didn't even remember this story, but it's still prominent in my mind. And then another high school friend of mine who wasn't with me, she's um, a black friend, uh, 
that I've just reconnected with because she heard heard this talk. And um, she was like, I couldn't even imagine you smashing pumpkins, Heather. <laughs> but I did, and it was it was fun, I have to admit, back then um, when I was 17 or 18. So um, they knew that we didn't belong there, you know, and maybe if Anna and I had been there by ourselves because we're white-bodied, maybe we wouldn't have been othered in the way uh, because we would fit in because of our skin. Um, but maybe our our uh, accents, our kind of working class Italian-American accents might have been a signifier of class or the way that we dressed. Maybe we wouldn't have had all of our Benetton on at the same time. That was very popular back then. Um, so in my coming of age in the 80s, in the ecosystem of my family and my school and my neighborhood, you know, I wouldn't have said that these women, these girls were being racist or classist. Like I said, I would have just called them snobs but I was very self-conscious about being you know, working class. And like I said, we never even talked about this. We smashed the pumpkins and then we just laughed and we just drove home. Now, had you driven by while we were smashing the pumpkins, you probably would have called us hoodlums and maybe even called the police because you had not witnessed how we were shamed and othered just moments before. You might have had less empathy because you had less information. You just saw the result, but not the cause or the many causes. Had you known about our personal struggles on a daily basis with racism, sexism, and classism, maybe you would have had you know, more empathy. And had you been a practicing Buddhist at the time, perhaps instead of judging us, you would have taken the backward step, shown the light on your own past behaviors, the times when you were enraged, the times when you acted out, the times when you were not able to stay open, present, and calm, with the causes and conditions arising in your life. Maybe you would, maybe you had never smashed pumpkins in your life. Maybe you drank too much, or maybe you worked too much, or maybe you were cheating on your spouse. These are all much more acceptable coping mechanisms in our capitalist white supremacist society. You know, when we smashed these pumpkins, you know, what were we really smashing? We were raging against those snobby girls' voices telling us we didn't belong that we were not good enough, that we needed to stay in our place. And we are also smashing our own internalized voices, telling us the same. What, Mark, what um, Martin Luther King Jr. calls the internal violence of the spirit, or as uh, my friend Kazuhaga calls in his book, Healing Resistance, internalized oppression, right? This is when the messages from oppressive systems and worldviews about our inferiority take root inside our own minds until we start to believe in our own inferiority. So what, some of the, what are some of the negative beliefs I had learned by the time I was 17? I believed that I was inferior because neither of my parents had gone to college and my two older brothers had dropped out of high school. I believed I wasn't as valuable as my two brothers because our family and neighborhood had internalized the patriarchy handed down to them and reinforced by societal norms. So these beliefs were part of my internal culture, right? My karmic conditioning. And they were reinforced and amplified by society at large. And had we as teenagers been able to, or been taught to pause, reflect, and remain calm while the snobby girls were mocking us, then maybe we would have wondered, why are they acting out? What negative beliefs had they internalized? 
how had their sense of entitlement and superiority caused them harm? If they were scorning us, who had belittled them? If they truly loved themselves, if their internal culture was one of peace and integration, then they would not have to puff themselves up by putting us down. So had we not smashed the pumpkins, would that have meant the absence of racism and classism? Nope. Had those girls not mocked us, would that have, indi would that have indicated the absence of conflict? No, because both these scenarios would just reflect a negative piece, right? The absence of tension that comes at the expense of justice. So I'll say that again. Negative peace is the absence of tension that comes at the expense of justice. It's a, a phrase that I learned uh, in Kazu's book, Healing Resistance, is that this negative peace is created and maintained by ubiquitous, which means widespread, unspoken understanding that surfacing conflict is not welcome. Another phrase for this negative peace is a tyranny of civility. So in my observation, this negative piece is one of the main signifiers of spaces that are dominated by white-bodied people. I find personally this false harmony creates an air of oppression that cloaks our white privilege and stifles the voices of people who do not measure up to the standards of white body supremacy, which is the norm of our culture. Even though I identify as white and I'm given all the privileges afforded, white body people in our racist world, I often feel like a misfit in white dominated spaces, um, especially if those spaces are dominated by white angle people. And I also have to feel like I have to adapt to fit into this white anglo world. Um, so for me, when we avoid conflict, um, this is when the weeds of delusion grow right, in the shade of our blind spots. A. Um, hey Dogen was the uh, 13th century founder of Zen in Japan. And he says that um, when we avoid things, that's when the weeds grow. We avoid the weeds, next thing you know, they take over the entire lawn. <laughs> but if we grasp the flowers, they also fall. They also, the blossoms fall, the blossoms die, right? So avoiding isn't helpful and grasping isn't helpful, right? The extremes are very, are harmful. And the Buddha talks about the middle way, the middle way between avoiding, right? And the middle way between grasping, grasping and avoiding. So um, for me, the culture of the fake harmony to me is really at odds with the study and practice of Zen or Buddhism when we are, uh, when Dogen tells us to study the self, right? We take that backward step and we illuminate what's happening in our internal world, which is why Zazen is so uh, transformative because it actually helps us get in touch with what's going on in the body, what's, what arising in the mind and what is arising uh, emotionally for us, right? What are the emotion sensations that are arising? So the more we're able to illuminate what's going on for us internally, the more um, integrated we can become and the less we radiate out uh, our internalized karmic conditioning, right? 
So there's all this division, as we know, in our society, these arbitrary divisions based on religion, race, age, ability, gender, etc. But the ism that is universal and that's most insidious is our own internal schisms, right? The original sin of alienation from our original face, from our true self. Other words to describe the schism are like a fracture or disunion, which speaks to our own internalized oppression. So the unexamined beliefs and unresolved conflicts internally, that's what we externalize. And that becomes the culture of an institution or an organization or a religion. So if we are unable or unwilling to bear witness to our own internal culture of oppression, how can we possibly engage in generative nonviolent and healing and sometimes very messy dialogue about the harm that's perpetuated by all these societal isms, right? So those isms begin here. And if we are avoiding those, the weeds of those isms, um, whatever they may be for us in our internal culture, it's, they radiate outward, right? So it's, we externalize and often do the most harm when we're unaware. Whatever our blind spots are, often we act from those unconscious places and we cause harm to ourselves and others. Another way to look at my friends and I smashing these pumpkins is that we were disturbing the peace. But Kazu says that it's impossible to disturb what does not exist. So he talks about a sermon by Martin Luther King where Martin Luther King speaks of a peace boiled down to a stagnant complacency and a deadening passivity. So for me, I feel like this is how I was living my life for many, many years, a stagnant complacency and a deadening passivity. That's partly what prompted me to quit my life, my nine to five job and um, move to Tassajara. Um, so practicing Zazen and living at Tassajara and studying with my teachers and Dharma sisters and brothers helped wake me up to the stagnation, right? Um, that's why I left the comfort of my nine to five middle-class life. And Kazu calls this awakening, disturbing the complacency. I really love this phrase. How can we disturb the complacency internally, right? so that we, we, we are no longer stagnating. We're no longer, if you will, asleep to what's going on for us internally. Um, because if we don't take care of what's going on here, um, it's very difficult for us to uh, help others, to help others to be spacious and compassionate toward other beings. I know that, um, you know, for me in Zen, I feel like the goal is goal of a Zen practice is actually just dis disturbing the complacency for me, my internal culture, right? Like what are the schisms in my own heart mind that cause me to harm myself and others? How can I disturb the complacency of my white body privilege of my college educated mind of being a Zen priest? And I have this privilege of being vaccinated, having healthcare, living in a beautiful community, Right, while all around me, the twin pandemics of COVID and hatred are engulfing our country. So we can lay these injustices of society in the sunlight of ultimate reality, but they will not magically transform unless we do the hard, messy work of investigating and healing our inherited 
karmic conditioning. Buddha nature is the wisdom that runs through all things. It does not differentiate depending on our skin color, our country of origin, the clothes that we wear, or whether we roll along sidewalks or whether we walk on sidewalks. So however, until we acknowledge and celebrate our differences, until we heal our internal schisms, until we name our conflicts, we will continue to experience the suffering of separation of these false isms that we identify with. The armor around our hearts will not melt until the walls of our minds collapse. And I had the good fortune when I was in college of doing um, an independent study on Mahatma Gandhi's philosophy and uh, his nonviolence, civil disobedience to free India from the rule of the British uh, imperialistic empire. And here's one of my favorite quotes that has stuck with me this whole time. You know, peace between countries must rest on the solid foundation of love between individuals. And I'd like to take that a little step further and add that love between individuals must rest on the solid foundation of peace within ourselves. Thank you, Bodhisattvas. So if anyone has um, any questions,